0: Yo, welcome to So You Wanna Be An Artist, the only podcast that's for the artists, by the artists, every goddamn week. My guest today, it's hard to uh, to kind of put into words what you do. First and foremost, primarily, filmmaker, right? Would you say that? Storyteller. Storyteller. Um, just an all-around artist, um, music video specialist, as... You've definitely seen... If you haven't heard of his name, you've definitely seen some of the videos that he's made. I'm literally going to reel off some of his client list at a moment while he sits and cringes. Embarrassing. But creative direction for Amy Winehouse, Kevin Spacey, Rihanna, Jay-Z, Prince, Britney, Madonna, Helen Mirren, David Blaine, Ethan Hawke, Janelle Monet, Paul McCartney, Adele, Naomi Campbell, Mary J. Blige, Diana Ross, Stevie Wonder. And there's definitely... A lot more, but those are the, the highlight names and the ones that are, uh, he loves to talk about and hopefully we can get some insight into. Uh, his name's Phil Griffin. Round Evening. of applause for Phil Griffin. One man round of applause. Phil, the first question that I ask everyone that comes on the podcast, what is art?
1: A story. Art is a story. From a perspective, a perception of reality, a position from which to look at the rest of the world and the rest of the people in the world. It's a way of making sense or not making sense of what we live, life.
0: It's a story of life. What makes you the artist that you are? I
1: trust my voice, it's taken a long time to trust my voice but if I am an artist it's because I'm learning over the years to trust my voice, if I'm wrong I'm wrong, if I'm right I'm right, the space in between is where the art is I guess.
0: What, what do you mean by if I am an artist?
1: Because I don't think you can define yourself as an artist, again every human being by nature of what their body does, what their body is made of. The fact that their lungs take in oxygen, the fact that their heart beats, their pulse races, that the smell of a woman or of a man can make you suddenly feel different than you did when you woke up. All of these things completely make every human being on the planet an artist.
0: So by that definition, you definitely are an artist.
1: The human side of me, yes.
0: I mean, that's definitely the endeavour of this podcast is to make everybody realise that we come from a long line of artists and everything that we see around us is art. And it's just to kind of help people realise that inherently everybody is an artist. As someone who is on the other side of their artistry, and how long have you been professional? How long have you been independently making a living off of your art? 35 years right. well that's definitely longer than I've been alive and most of my listeners have probably been alive and probably double some of them so as someone who has such a long tenure in the game does it get any easier? I don't think it gets any easier but I
1: definitely think you enjoy how much harder it becomes You accept the struggle, you accept the conflict as a part of the creation process. You stress less, you fight less, sometimes. And I I hope you come to realize that it is in the struggle and the conflict of creation that you learn most about yourself. And if you learn about yourself, then hopefully you can show more humility to others and therefore become a better person overall.
0: In contrast to when you first started and the position that kind of my generation is at at the moment, do you think that we've got it easy?
1: No, I don't don't agree with that. I think every generation has it as hard as the next or the one previous because the human experience is one of challenging ourselves to make sense of the world as we see it. And only through experience can we begin to make sense of that world except the things we cannot change, change the things we can and have the wisdom to know the difference. That comes with experience. So I don't think your generation has it harder or easier than mine. You just have it.
0: Same. When was the first time you realized that you wanted to create for a living? Or you actually, you wanted to express yourself for a living or try and make sense of the world for a living?
1: Honestly. To get a girl. Originally.
0: Yeah. yeah. But isn't that what it's all for? Isn't that what everything is pretty much about? Is to get someone.
1: I think to get recognition. Because when you fall in love for the first time. And when you are possessed by love. Or obsessed with love. All you're really looking for is someone to reflect back your own humanity. So, you know, that, that heartbeat of self... <clears throat> manifest itself first time when you look at another human and go, I want you to want me. That's when we start to want to express ourselves, to prove ourselves.
0: It's primal. Do you think that, that we've kind of got lost in that uh, pursuit of approval? And do you think that that's more what it's about now? And now that we have such things like celebrity and celebrity is attached to artistry, do you think that we kind of got lost along the way?
1: I don't think there's... A correlation between celebrity and either being lost or found I don't think anyone's lost or found I think everybody's standing still on the kind of crazy moving platform that is the world we live on remember the world moves around us we stand still we think we're moving but actually we're not we're just the still points lost? no I think we just have a lot more noise than we used to have and therefore we have to learn to listen
0: Taking it back, what was your first endeavour into art?
1: I wrote an article for a magazine about a dancer. And that glimpse into their world, a world of expression, a world of pain, a world of exhilaration and adrenaline adrenaline just inspired me and I, I realized I didn't want to write about that experience I wanted to have that experience dance dance
0: Yeah. so your first foray was into
1: dance I was a dancer yes when did you stop I am a dancer you are a dancer when yeah. was the last time you danced last time I held a camera I danced all right that's poetic <laughs> everything if you look at my work actually if you analyse anything that I've done it's the relationship between the movement of the person in front of it and me that creates the, um, the images so whether it's the way that Amy moves her head and the way my camera moves round her in a photograph or if it's the way that Prince walks over a bridge and the camera drops down in front of him everything is
0: choreographed, everything
1: I've ever done is, has been about choreography
0: How mindful are you you, of the audience when you are shooting a video or when you're creating? That's been a journey,
1: definitely. Now, I'm mindful only of trying to share my honest view of others and trying to give my subjects, whoever is in front of my camera, in my lens, whether it be in a still image, on a live stage or... In a film, it's about trying to give them a safe space to be themselves in. Because if you reveal truth, you're making art of some
0: kind. Sometimes it's hard to reveal truth, to be vulnerable and expose yourself like that. Do you, you work with a lot of pop stars. Do you come across just false versions of truth? And kind of, let's say when you're working with a pop star and they want to project an image or a certain personality... How do you cut through that?
1: Make myself vulnerable for them. Show them that vulnerability is not um, some kind of wound that's gonna make them bleed out. Vulnerability, there's an old saying, a good photograph is not taken, it's given. It's something I say a lot. A good photograph is not taken, it's given. I think the same of a performance. I think the same of a piece of footage. You have to create a space where that person, whoever you're directing, whoever you're photographing, you have to create a space for them to feel comfortable enough to reveal themselves and to make them feel like you're the only person they're revealing to. To make Britney Spears forget that she's talking to 100 million people is everything I aspire to do.
0: What do you get out of it?
1: The honour of having their truth. The honour of having their vulnerability. And sharing mine with them. It's funny, you know, even to this day, I feel very close to every artist I've ever worked with if it's, if it's worked, if the synergy has happened. And Sometimes when it doesn't, I have to be honest, sometimes it's my arrogance or my judgment of them which has made the work poor because if I don't see the beauty or the honesty in, in my subject, I might as well go home.
0: But sometimes it does work and it has the opposite effect because they feel like they reveal too much, surely.
1: Some artists never want to see me again after I've filmed them or photographed them.
0: Is that because you just have just brought out so much or you know so much about them that they just feel like kind of insecure that you wouldn't use it against them?
1: I don't think anyone I've ever filmed has felt I'll use... What I learn against them, I think in the sharing, I think if you get someone to the point where they're willing to be vulnerable for you, that moment in itself is kind of like sex. There's a, a moment of shared experience where you see each other and it's it's hardcore. And I don't think the adrenaline that happens to hum, to two human beings when they share like that ever goes away. But I think certainly afterwards there can be a moment where they go wow, did I really tell him that or did I really show him that? And that can lead to some moments of the big brother of vulnerability, which is shame, I suppose.
0: So you think that some people might see shame when they see you because they've had to face their insecurities or face their vulnerabilities? Or they've
1: had to face my vulnerability. If I've shown them my darkness... In order to try to get them to reveal their truth, they might—they might not like what they see.
0: I know that's true of a couple. So taking, I want—I want to get into how your more recent work, definitely being involved in the process of something, of it feels like therapy and it feels like counselling, especially the interview-based stuff. But I want to get into that later. I want to talk about. Um, your first venture into music videos, because you was kind of around the, 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 the time that music videos was really the biggest platform in the world, and they were spending millions and hundreds of thousands on music videos. What was it like trying to break into that industry or that ecosystem as a young, young man?
1: Impossible. I had to literally break in to a record company. <laughs> And lie
0: and cheat. (laughs) What was the lie? What did you tell?
1: I called up a record company um, where the commissioner, who is the person who hires directors, had the same surname as me. And I told the receptionist I was her brother. And she picked up the phone because she didn't have a brother. And she was interested in who this brother was. But the lie got me in to see her and we became very close friends. Where was this? MCA Records in the days before Universal owned the world. And then what happened to that
0: relationship after that? Like, where did that go?
1: We made some 30 or 40 videos together over five years, and I ended up um, having her job as creative director of MCA Records. Where did she go? Sony.
0: Okay, is she still active?
1: No, she retired and became a sculptress in the mountains of Spain.
0: That is goals. (laughs) That is life goals. Mm. So when you were creative director at MCA, what kind of responsibilities did you have?
1: It was a little bit of a strange one because my boss at that time, when Catherine, Catherine Griffin, who we should give some respect to, left and, and went off to Spain to become a, a sculptress, the, the marketing director said to me, Phil, you do most of our videos with Catherine. You might as well take her job then I don't have to change the nameplate on the door. <laughs> That's literally what he said to me. Um... But I never wanted that job. I wanted to, By then I wanted to be a director and I knew that having spent four years training to be a dancer and then eight years being a dancer professionally, I knew that I wasn't about to go back to college to study a new medium. And I felt that the only way I could learn to be a director was if I was around other directors. So I, I applied for this job that was coming when Catherine left and I, I got the gig. And the way I sold myself to the record company, was I, I said, look, we live in the pop video age where Top of the Pops and Smash hits, Pole Winners Party and um, Ant and Deck in the days of CD UK where performance and visuals and the whole campaign around the music video are huge. It doesn't begin or end with the music video. It, it is absolutely integrated so I want to help you with the live performances of your acts I want to help you with the photo shoots of your acts I want to help you with the choreography of your acts and it doesn't matter whether they're dancing they're also moving anyone from ocean color scene through to Mary J Blige came through MCA black grape And I was responsible for crossing the departments working with a on music that came through the door working with the marketing department on on imaging making artists comfortable in their own skin, going to TV shows, Top of the Pops, all of those shows I mentioned already, and also being on their video shoots with them and helping them choose their directors. That for me was a way to learn from Hype Williams, um, Mark Romanic, a million other directors who were still young when I started commissioning. I could be on their sets, watch what they were doing, look at the way they use lenses, look at the way they talk to artists, and I went back to school, but in a real job.
0: That was long. That was long. Let's <laughs> not like tiptoe around it. You are a pop legend. Like if you bring up your name to anyone who was kind of around late nineties, well, mid to late nineties to early two thousands. And you said Phil Griffin, they would all be like, yeah, I know Phil, of course I know Phil. He's like incredible. How many jobs were you doing a week?
1: There's a director in America called Marcus Nispel and another one called Joseph Kahn. Both of them are really legends. I looked at their output as as the person giving them work and they had teams, not team, teams plural. They would have a commercials producer producing their Nike spot. They would have a music video producer producing their Destiny's Child video. They would have a photography producer producing their... Beyonce photo shoot. They were clever because they they brought in crews to support their work and if you bring in a crew you can do anything you want to do. If you're driven and if you're passionate work is not work it's just a hobby that you get paid for. So I was doing maybe five or six music videos a week.
0: Isn't that just a lot to handle physically and mentally?
1: It put me in hospital after a while yeah. You just did too many videos and we would sometimes edit a video till 5 o'clock in the morning and then I would get a cab and go to the next video shoot.
0: Have you ever shot two videos at the same time? Not officially. <laughs> what does that mean, not officially?
1: There was two acts that were in two studios and I was bouncing between the two. So you shot two videos at the same time?
0: Yeah. Well, what happened? What, what do you mean it put you in hospital? I
1: broke. At a certain point, my body gave up, my liver collapsed, my spleen collapsed, Um, everything stopped working. My body told me that I had to stop. And that's when I got good.
0: What do you mean, that's that's when you got good? Because you decided to limit what you were doing or channel yourself more focused?
1: The art of business is not the same as the business of art. As an artist, I never really faced what I wanted to make. I make what I had to make for my company to grow. I represented 11 directors at one time, all working across genres from rock videos to pop videos to R&B videos. I signed some of the most interesting talent that was around in those days, and all of whom eclipsed me as a director now. Ray Kay in America, Emil Narva, Ben Navla, Taylor.
0: If you know about Emil Navarro, he used to run errands and was a T-boy on, on, as his first break on Phil's sets.
1: But the T-boy is often the most important person on the set.
0: Well, definitely, if he dictates your mood.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I had a lot of directors and a lot of work going on through my company and it broke me. I just took on too much. So after six weeks in the hospital... I came back out and I went into my company and I sat the whole team down and I said each of you will find a new home and I will help you find a new home but from tomorrow I am going solo and I don't know what I'm going to do but I know I can't maintain this anymore and I needed to take a break, to take stock, my extended re-education from choreographer to filmmaker was done and I needed to become an artist rather than pretend to be one.
0: Do you feel like you became?
1: I met Amy Winehouse and everything changed.
0: Well, how did the relationship with Amy start?
1: In those days, if you look back at my work, um, I was very prolific. Most of my videos were number one on, on the charts of, the, of those days, but not always because they were good, but because I was working with number one artists. So I became the go-to guy, really, from, for record companies who needed to solve a problem or get an artist noticed. Um, because of the volume of my work, I would get hired a lot to break artists. I'm not always sure it was valid to do that, but it happened. Tyler James was an artist on Island Records. And the label were having a few problems getting him away and getting people to notice him. They'd made a bunch of videos and put out a bunch of records and it wasn't quite working. So they called me. He was managed by Simon Fuller who started the Spice Girls. And they said, look, can you look at this artist and tell us what to do with him visually? So I came up with a plan and it worked to a degree. And um, Tyler became a great friend. And he invited me out one night and said, look, you need to meet a friend of mine. This young girl, Amy Winehouse. She's incredible. She's just got a record deal. And I think you and her would be, would be great together. So Tyler introduced us.
0: So was this pre or post-Frank?
1: In the middle of Frank.
0: So had she had singles out?
1: Stronger than me had been.
0: The video as well? With the, yes. the boy in the... the... Horrendous, and yeah. that stuff, and it wasn't a very... I didn't
1: get it. I'll be honest, I didn't get it. And I told Amy I didn't get it. What did she say? Fuck you.
0: <laughs> and your reply was? Sorry, babe. And then, is that how the relationship started?
1: Yep. We drank a lot of tequila. And she said, tomorrow I'm going to send you a song, and it's going to blow your mind.
0: And that song was? Rehab. And what did you think when you first heard that? The A&R in you and the creative director and the fan of music
1: I thought oh my god I just told this girl that I didn't get her and she has just sent me the best pop record I've ever heard in your life? in my life
0: what was your reply to that email?
1: just wow when do we start? and she said we don't you fucked it (laughs) she truly did so I had to beg a little bit and I had to um, do everything I could with my charm offensive to get her back on board. And I did manage to get Amy back on board. But there was a bigger problem because the record company didn't think I was cool enough. Amy was blowing up. Frank had, uh, was a, um, a Brit award-winning album. Anybody who was anybody wanted to work with her. And my history was pop records, boy bands, girl bands, people you have a problem getting on TV. My work wasn't noticed in America yet. So I was still very much the king of English pop, and and Amy was not that. So the record company said no.
0: What won them over?
1: Amy. Amy said, he gets me, listen to him. So the record company came back and said, look, we have a problem actually here, because Amy wants to do a performance video with her band, but the song is so strong and it's such a true story, we really need to tell the story of Rehab and we don't know how to do it because all the scripts aren't working and she won't do it and she likes you can you write something that helps us so being a problem solver i looked at it and i wrote the script for rehab which anybody who hasn't seen the video it's the journey of amy to rehab but with her band she wakes up in the morning the band are in her bed she goes to brush her teeth the band are in her bath she goes to the doctor they're in the Doctor's surgery, she goes outside, they're there. She gets to rehab, they're there. Everywhere she goes, her band are with her.
0: And obviously that came out and was one of the biggest songs of all time, ever. Huge. Nothing what did that to do did do to, to your career? Was the, the, the kind of perspective that it flipped? Was it like, oh, wow, Pop, uh, Phil Griffin is cool now.
1: I don't think the world is that polite. I don't think anybody thought Phil Griffin was cool now. I think people thought Phil Griffin can do cool, perhaps. I don't know, because I never made a move about being cool. A week after Amy, I was back doing a pop act that I loved because I've always been very loyal to any artist that's loyal to me. And... Um, Cool is another country. I don't get cool.
0: <laughs> I had a question. Uh, did you feel like... In terms of a creative partnership... That you would struck gold with Amy?
1: Didn't even think about that. I knew I loved her. I knew I needed to protect her. I tried. I knew that... She was the most important... Singer to come out of country... Out of this country... Or any anyone anywhere in the world, probably since Billy Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald. I love jazz music. I love blues. My favourite artist next to Amy Winehouse is probably Diana Ross, who I introduced her to, which was interesting. Um, so yeah, I didn't think about gold. I just thought about truth. She was truth
0: someone that you love so much and that you work so closely with, when what happened to her happened, as tragic as it was what did that do to you in terms of creating? Did you feel like that was something that you couldn't capture again with anybody else?
1: I didn't want to look at another music video ever again to be honest
0: How long did that last?
1: Until I heard Maverick Sabre Wow This is the first voice that I heard that I thought okay, music's still alive
0: How did, was he brought to you or did you just hear him on the radio? Like what was that moment? It was
1: the usual thing. That's a re- not
0: a slight, we can just skim over that like it's a sl- small thing, but that's a very fucking powerful situation to not ever want to do a music video again, hear an artist and be like, oh my God, like it's like a rebirth.
1: It's funny, I said to Mav when, when I first spoke to him, I said those words, this is the first voice, it feels like Amy's come back in a, in a boy's voice. Um, and I wanted to work with him immediately. Um, I didn't and haven't. Go figure.
0: <laughs>
1: Are you still trying to? We will. We'll find a way. Uh, the record company at that time didn't really get my approach.
0: I don't think they get Mav. I still don't think they get Mav.
1: Again, you know. No one ever got Amy. No one ever got Prince. These artists have to arrive in their own place, in their own time. And the problem is business takes over. And I'm not slating record companies because record companies are about business. It's the artists very often who get it wrong themselves. They become business heads. And they stop focusing on what they're good at and become good at what they're focusing on. It's a different... Here's a tune. Gran Torino, Jamie Cullum. Amazing song. Written by Clint Eastwood believe it yeah, or not.
0: Curtis was Eastwood's the guy.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, as an artist, you have to be very focused on your truth, and it's a very hard place to be. They say artists have to suffer for their art. I don't agree with that. I think what you have to suffer, suffer for is the urge to protect your truth, and so many artists don't protect their truth, and Kane, you were with me when we sat downstairs with with Mav, and I said, look, dude, Whatever doesn't work for you is your fault, not anyone else's. Take responsibility for your art. Make it the best you can make it. And if it fails, it fails on your terms. There was an incredible singer when I was young as a director called Connor Reeves, who I think is the father of English soul music, definitely. But he was signed to a record deal and he tried to do what the record company thought was right and all their intentions were correct. But he didn't quite stick to his own path. You can't vary from your own path as an artist. Well, why you hasn't to... Mav
0: listened to you? Why is he still doing videos in New Orleans?
1: No, that's a long time ago. Mav's... No,
0: this came out... This was his most recent single. Um, fly, Come Fly Away, Fly Away. Yeah, but days.
1: that's like six months ago. Yeah,
0: but... The that's... conversation
1: we had with Mav was after all of that. Oh,
0: okay, okay.
1: It, it, he's he's looking at his he situation right now, I believe. He, and I, be.
0: he was He's criminally overlooked.
1: Criminally overlooked, but, but again... Listen, you know, I got 35 years on you, time, nobody gives anything any time, including myself. We forget that in 10 years time, things will be different. In two years time, things will be different. I feel
0: like six months, things will be different.
1: In six months time. So you have to just try and stay steadfast to what it is that you want to say. Do we have time in this day and age? We have to take time.
0: I feel like that's what you have to suffer for. You have to suffer for your time. Everything else kind of comes next You have to
1: suffer. What do you mean by suffer for your time?
0: Well, it's like there isn't, there really isn't enough time because the way we consume media at the moment is so quick. It's like you have to suffer. You have to play the record label game to get the exposure as an artist to then even have some kind of window of opportunity. And you have to suffer the, the bullshit in order to be heard.
1: It's funny because for the first time I've just made something that I don't care if no one sees. I've done a documentary about an incredible living artist, the first living artist to have a piece of his work bought by the Roman Catholic Church while he's still alive, a sculpture. And I spent six months in his studios in Belgium, studying his work, filming his work, photographing his work making my own work about his work. And if no one ever sees it, it doesn't matter because, you know, art is a process and not a product. And at a certain point in your life, you have to face that truth. What I'm doing is about what I'm doing, not what gets done. The outcome often destroys the perpetrator of the art. Amy's music could be seen as destroying her. I once said to Diana Ross... Incredible, credible mother of all blues singers. Can you just do a bit of Billie Holiday tonight? Because you sing it so good. For for anyone who's younger here, billy Holiday was played by Diana Ross in a song called "Lady" in a film called "Lady Sings the Blues," probably the the best blues movie ever made. And Diana Ross played her. Should have won an Oscar. She didn't. She was the wrong color at that time. Maybe still. And I said to her, you should really sing these songs. You sing them better than anyone since Billie Holidays. Please sing the songs. And Diana Ross said to me, do you know what those songs did to me? Do you know how those songs hurt me? Do you know how those songs made me want to drink myself into the bottom of the glass every single night? And for the first time as a young artist, I understood what truth repeatedly told can do to an artist. If you're a true artist and if you're like Amy, putting your heart on your sleeve about love, about pain, into those words, into those melodies, every time you sing that song, you're ripping off a um a scab and you're bleeding again. So art sometimes is something that one should make and leave and walk away.
0: That's kind of a thing that always comes up in conversation when I do these podcasts is about how I how sick I kind of find live performances like um, how you were paid to stand and literally watch someone pick off their scabs and, and bleed out in front of you for everybody to clap and I always I always wonder like how is that for them to go up and do that and, and experience that
1: well again there's, there's great beauty in sharing vulnerability
0: like it might as well happen in front of you the situations that happen Like, there's no difference between Amy singing about crying on the kitchen floor and Amy just sitting on a stage and crying. Like, it feels like it's the same thing.
1: No, I don't agree with that. Because to analyse, encapsulate and reproduce the purity of that emotion and to share it through composition and through discipline and through vulnerability is not the same thing. I went to... Uh, an open mic thing last night, and it was very interesting because there were some young artists there who had incredible voices, but they were singing for themselves. It was so indulgent, there was nothing honest about their performance, no matter how good their voices were. there was just that little bit missing, and the bit that missing the bit that was missing was the truth. If you share the truth, it becomes something sacred, and if you don't respect that so that sacred space that you share it in it's not art so it's not the same as just sitting on the stage and crying because anyone can do that anyone can go and smash themselves in the face or ring their ex-boyfriend and go you don't love me no i don't it's not the same thing finding a poem out of it finding a piece of yourself that you're willing to share and let go that's that's something else how we recover from it how we go on and do it over and over again. My teacher in Belgium says it takes a lifetime to become a young artist. I think that's very important for your listeners to understand. Again, time. Time has to be the building block of art. It has to be the thing that you invest is your time. And so you have to be careful what you invest your time in. It takes a lifetime to become a young artist because we're born, we unlearn everything we knew the moment we were born. And then we have to slowly... Recover it. I often say life is not about discovery it's about recovery we get older and we recover all the truths that we hold inside ourselves from the moment we're born and it's almost like we're retracing our steps you get to a certain age 21 you think you own the world 24 you know you hate you very much 23 you you hate the world you don't own 30 you come to terms with the world that you don't own 40 you wish you were never born 50, you own your own world, if you're lucky.
0: Is that you telling us how old you are? I'm not 50. (laughs) I'm 52. Why at 40 do you not want to
1: live anymore? Because it's hard. Life is hard. And you have to make so many sacrifices and so many compromises, mortgages, kids in school. Do you have to? You don't have to, but one does. It's, It's pretty much the human experience to learn to accumulate material stuff, which you then... Google George Carlin comedy sketch stuff.
0: Comedy legend George
1: Carlin. Yeah. Google that. Watch stuff. He'll tell you. You get all this stuff and you collect it and then you need to put it somewhere and then you need another space for more stuff. And then your stuff's important shit and other people's stuff is just shit. So you have to protect your own stuff. It's what we... It's what we do as humans, and then we have to slowly unlearn
0: that. Is that something you're unlearning? I'm definitely unlearning. Uh, What are you trying to get rid of? Baggage. (laughs) Physically?
1: Sometimes physically, but then, you know, you're in my studio right now, and for me, this is a sacred space. It's a place where I get to think, and it's a place where I get to have ideas, and it's a place where I get to create, whether it's recovering pictures that were made for me 30 years ago that were in a garage and got all moldy and I had to clean them for eight hours with alcohol and a, what do you call those things you stick in, a Q-tip, cotton bud, bud. or um, CDs and pictures and top hats and boxes and poems that I've had for 25 years. But the truth is this studio costs money every month, so I have to pay for it every month. So therefore I have to earn something to pay for it. So there's the compromise.
0: Do, are you happy with that compromise or do you resent it slightly?
1: I'm very happy with that compromise. I resent it. I struggle it? with
0: that of doing, of course, I need to do, I need to pay for some stuff. Natural, I need a phone. I need to travel across London or to and from wherever I am. And It, it does, it gets a bit resentful. Like, fuck, do I really have to just do this for, for my freedom? That small price for your freedom? Yes, you do. And that's again, that's another thing you have to suffer for your time because the suffering that you do is shit you don't want to do just so you can buy yourself some time to sit in an office and do do nothing if you choose to. This isn't an office. Or a studio.
1: But that's quite beautiful because...
0: You remain a starving artist, essentially.
1: (laughs) Starving artist is a weird term because... You know, even Van Gogh, who everyone said was a starving artist, and he cut off, cut off his ear because he was a starving artist. He wasn't a starving artist. His brother was one of the richest gallerists in Paris at that time and funded everything that Vincent Van Gogh ever did. Not
0: Theo Van Gogh.
1: Theo Van Gogh. He had red wine and women whenever he wanted them, Vincent Van Gogh did. So, uh, listen, again, legend is is based on lies mostly. The truth is. You put up with whatever you have to put up with to be who you want to be. And at a certain point, you do start to look at your world and go, I do want to go to Africa and watch Lions and watch Cheetahs, which I just did. I do want to do that. That costs money, so I have to earn the money to do that. So, But you do start to reverse around. So you start to do things to earn money to do things you want to do. Rather than earn money to protect all the things that you've accumulated that you don't really want or need, there, there is a shift, and I think it comes around the 40s.
0: Oh, Jesus, I've got 17 more years of this shit. You'll do it. Well, I hope so. I hope so. Talk about um, the way you said that you're now trying to unlearn and recapture those truths from when you were born. Is that the space you create from? Is that like a momentary window into that time period that you're talking about?
1: Everything I make is a reflection of who I'm with. It's funny, I said to my adopted son today, he, congratulate, he, congrac- he congratulated me on a 21st anniversary. 22nd. Twenty second. and I said to him you know you, you're a part of that and he said what do you mean I'm a part of that and I said well my commitment to you as a newborn to see it, see you through to adulthood to try and make sure that you become some kind of decent man has shown me what a commitment is about it's shown me what running the race to the end is all about that teaches me every single day when I look at you Kane chatty massively talented young man, very resistant to his own talent, wants to live as a nomad, but really wants a place in the world where he can create art from. I'm inspired by that, which is why I like to try to mentor a little bit and say, well, do you think you should do that? Or do you think you should do this? My art is a reflection of the people that I spend time with. And the people I spend time with are usually artists, younger than myself often, or sometimes older, depending. But young minds, whether they're 100 years old, I saw a YouTube video of a 104 year old guy running a marathon. <laughs> and he was beating the 70 year old guy. There's a great thing on um
0: probably trained with some 20 year olds, that's why.
1: There's a great quote from um a great guru called Eknath Sawarin. And there apparently this dude who's 135 years old in northern India. Um, 135
0: 135
1: there are there are there are dudes in northern India that can live that that age. And someone asked him one day, he said, teacher, how would you like to be young again? And the old dude said, oh, to be 110. <laughs> and I think that's a great perspective. You know, keep your mind young. You said to me earlier, some of the interview stuff that I do is is bordering on therapy or, or counselling. I, I learnt that. When I listen to young people talk, when I listen to people struggling with their perception of themselves or trying to find the artist within themselves, the most honest thing I can do is try to be generous with my time and experience and say, well, look at that. What does that mean? Try this. And then it's the choice of the individual whether they want to look at it or try it. It's perhaps my responsibility to send the elevator back down a little bit and to go look I I'm here whether you see me above or below you it doesn't really matter it's worth trying does that make sense
0: yeah i'm sure it will make sense when i listen to it again i'm trying to think of questions at the same time I'll, I'll i'll be a martyr i'll jump on on the on the grenade why do you think that kind of people around my age range or just young people in general struggle to find the artist in themselves and if you want to use me as an example feel free to because i think the discipline of time has been forgotten
1: i will tell a story about kane which he may have forgotten oh fucking hell! <laughs> one of the first time i met kane was in the offices of SBTV, and um I'd been asked to go and see Jamal and have a look at what he was doing there and see if there's anything I could add. And I was intrigued how this young group of inexperienced directors and artists were creating such a storm online without any training, without any specific, obvious skills. So I I went down and had a look and Kane was there. And the first, again, memory is a liar, so Kane might want to correct me on this. The first thing that Jamal asked me to do was oversee a Leona Lewis Christmas video. And Leona and Kane were meeting in Hyde Park at the fairground. And there was going to be an interview. And there was going to be some filming. And I think they filmed together for four or five hours during the day.
0: Let's say two hours, two hours.
1: Kane presented an edit 20 minutes after he started looking at the footage. (laughs) Roughly, ratio-wise. This
0: isn't the first time we met, but yeah, carry on.
1: And I said, that's an interesting edit. Tell me how you got there. He said, well, we found all the best bits and we put them together. Did you look at every single frame? Did you look at every single thing more than once? (laughs) Did you interrogate the footage? (laughs) No, that would be long. (laughs) And there was this culture, there is this culture in younger generations to get instantly to the point to see it put it down there put it out there move on and I celebrate that but at the same time to interrogate your experiences to really study what happens to you in your life and to come out the other end with a better understanding of yourself and others is a way more interesting way of living I think so I think the disease of the younger generations if you want to call it that is they're too hasty to get on to the next thing And of course, YouTube and all the white noise that's out there, online, offline, speed dating, Tinder, this, that, the other, every single pointer in our life aims us at getting there, getting it, getting out. And I think that's the unfortunate thing for your generation. There is no patience to actually read a poem more than once or even read a poem. You want it read
0: to you. Or you want to watch it in a a video take time take time young G. take time it's all you've got and I would say that that definitely made me a better artist in general and even though, even if it didn't like personally I can kind of relate that same um lesson back when I'm working with other editors and other filmmakers now and it kind of makes me look a lot wiser than I actually am they're like oh but we just get no just take your time look at it all and they're like oh you really taught me something there. And I'm like, yeah, I thought of it myself. But the first time we actually met was when Jamal was saying, oh, you know, Phil's going to come in and help us. And I was like, we don't need no pop-loving, irrelevant guy coming in here and telling us how to do stuff. We've got it. Like, we're doing fine as it is. And then the first time you came into the office, obviously I knew everything that you'd done and you came in and you went, "Kane, I'm a fan. And I was, (laughs) I literally was like speechless. I was like, what? Uh, what? What? And everyone started laughing at me. That's the actual first time that we met. Um, and then, yeah, that was like, like three years ago, which is actually pretty. It's pretty long.
1: It's a big percentage of your years and a very small percentage of mine. It is because that's what time does. It, it expands
0: and gets bigger and
1: reduces at the same time. Every year that you live, the percentage of one year of your life is a smaller...
0: So that's it's kind of a hack, I guess, essentially, to tell someone who's younger to take time because obviously it's easy for you to say because your perspective of time is that it actually lasts a lot longer. Whereas No, a lot shorter. Opposite. What do you? How do you mean? But we... with us, a second to us is a lot shorter than your seconds because you've had a lot more of them.
1: I have less time left than you have. If I live to the average age of a man, which is 75 in this country... I have less time on this planet than you have so I should be in a bigger rush than you
0: yeah I guess it balances itself out but let's say if someone's 20 and you say 5 years to a 50 year old that's a 10th of your life which means it goes so slow but to a 20 year old that's a quarter of your life and that goes so quickly so it's like 5 years is like that's so long but to you it's like 5 years is not that long at all I've been here for 10 of them and it feels like yesterday
1: Yes, but you have to. The, the way to expand time is to, do is acid. to use all of it. <laughs> huh? Is to do acid. It's, yeah, you'll go through that phase, I suppose. The Did way you? to, of course. All right. The way to extend your life in your lifetime is to be aware of every moment of it and to use every moment of it, and that might be dating a girl. It might be watching seven hours of a box set, which I did yesterday because I needed to switch off and I needed not to think about Usher or Ronan or... AKT. Albert Kennedy Trust or my child waking me up at one o'clock in the morning because he hasn't got enough money for tequila. I wanted not to think about any of that. And as luck would have it on catch-up, I had five episodes of a TV series that I hadn't watched. And I was like, bonus, I can sit and absorb this program for five hours. And that's a good use of my time because it reset my brain and it calmed me back down so that I could come back in and make a judgment about a photograph or think about an edit or think about the space to give the young man from Albert Kennedy Trust that he needs to tell his story. So. I think all you do as you get older to expand your time is to use it more carefully and to be more aware that you don't have as much of it as you think.
0: As you get older, do you start to think about legacy a lot more?
1: not interested in
0: legacy. You personally or do you just think that's... In general. I think legacy is for ego. So why do you mentor?
1: Because that's a living... That's a living thing. I can't legacy from... I can't mentor from the grave. I can't... My work maybe can, but that's not me anymore. That's whatever's left behind. But to mentor is essentially to pass
0: on your philosophy.
1: No, no, no. A mentor is not to pass on my philosophy. That's what you do. It's to reveal... No, 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 no.
0: I can safely say that a lot of the stuff that I know or a lot of the ways that I um, critically think about things, I've learned through you.
1: Yes, because I've revealed it in you.
0: What, so like... You've given me the knowledge to kind of pair, partner up with my belief.
1: I've revealed, I haven't given you anything. I've revealed and introduced you to parts of yourself that you may have lain dormant. I've just reopened some neuro pathways to allow you to look at yourself in a more self-critical way and go, ah, actually, and in the human experience, there are common threads. The way I do things through experience might help you do things because they're good ways of doing things. But, but that's it's...
0: to denounce the work of any philosopher ever and say that they don't have legacy, but all they've I'm... really done is expose truth. That's all philosophy is. It's just a roundabout way to talk about truth and, and the human experience. So
1: I'm much more interested in scientists than I am philosophers because philosophers think about shit, scientists do shit. I'm not interested in philosophy because all philosophy is is a good conversation at the end of the day. A good experiment has an outcome. Philosophy just proposes an outcome. Doesn't interest me.
0: We didn't you didn't answer my childlike question.
1: What was a childlike question?
0: When you create, is that a window into what it feels like to be that child again who only knows truth?
1: When did you ask that question?
0: Yeah, I asked that question. Don't fucking sidestep it like I don't have great questions. Okay, um, ask it
1: again and let me consider it.
0: The question was when you you talk about recovering that childlike mentality of complete truth pure truth when you create is that you kind of peeking up over the ledge through that window to kind of learn how to maybe get there quicker or just to experience it again
1: I think it isn't useful to use terms like is it you peeking out it, again they're all they're, they're all tied up with the ego of an artist or the ego of a human living in a singular um, existence if I'd I would like to answer it by saying, when I create, I'm joining a conversation that's been going on for thousands of years with other artists. I'm in touch with Picasso, I'm in touch with Caravaggio, I'm in touch with Galileo. The moment you decide to act as an artist, you look at my David Blaine um, piece, he talks about he acts like a magician, I act like an interviewer, Ethan Hawke acts like an actor. As humans, we wear masks. And as an artist, you take that mask off. And once you take that mask off, you are just a part of that bigger artistic consciousness, if you like. So I don't think I... Is it an artistic
0: consciousness or is it just a human consciousness? I
1: think human consciousness is a piece of art. So all you are is revealing the part of you that is a piece of art when you become an artist or when you aspire to become an artist.
0: Well, why do people neglect that? Why is there so few people? Why is it actually commonly looked down upon
1: because they're taught to be frightened of it
0: but where are they taught where are they taught that
1: from the moment they're told to get a real job from the moment they're told to have qualifications from the moment they're told to achieve i left school with zero qualifications i sat down for my first exam and i thought this is bullshit and i walked out of the classroom and i never went back i haven't got a single qualification not one what did they do for you? I'm not saying don't go to school, because okay. it's a great place to learn, to to socialise, to learn to be with others. And I went back to college, I studied dance. I studied film. I'm still at college. I'm studying you. I'm studying whoever I put in front of my lens. I'm hoping to learn what it is that makes me tick by looking at others and seeing what makes them tick. It's a scientist's approach. So to go back to the thing, I, I don't believe in in getting back to the child within and and having a childlike approach to art. I believe in letting it come through you, opening your own door and having the courage to go, use me. Consciousness. And it's not, I'm not a hippie. You know, I'm not a hippie. It's it's not about smoking dope and taking, (laughs) what's that drink they drink in the desert? Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. My friend Aki said to me last night, when you get to America, I'm taking you to Alaska and we're taking...
0: Give, I want to go. Give me, give, give me his email address. Yeah. I want to do ayahuasca. I don't mind shitting myself and tripping out for ten hours. Yeah,
1: I'd rather do that without any of those things. I'd rather find my way possible? to.
0: it. possible? I can't even meditate.
1: I yeah, because you haven't learned to yet.
0: It's hard. It's
1: not hard. It's, it's not the easiest
0: hard when you're old man. Substances, no. When you're not yeah, but
1: that's not real. I spoke to, to to my son about this. When you're tripping, and trust me, I have. It's like looking at the world through a dirty pane of glass. You will see some reflections and some blurry sense of the truth, but it's so much nicer to have a window on that world through sparkly clean glass that you polished yourself. But
0: you are still looking at the same world.
1: Absolutely, but you're not obscuring it, you're not blurring it, and you're not distorting it, because those mind-altering drugs leave a residue especially nowadays listen again where your generation has got it bad is none of the drugs are clean they're all cut with so much personal soap other brands are available that you
0: <laughs> Tesco value
1: yeah you you're not really getting a true experience well, so maybe out in the jungle huh
0: that depends on what you're taking yeah well
1: maybe i'm just not interested in that anymore i wasn't that interested in they just lost me time and time's too valuable Who wants to spend 12 hours not being here?
0: It depends where you go. So it's relative, I would say.
1: I'd rather be awake wherever I go.
0: You've got to be woke. (laughs) Awake versus woke. Next question. I don't even... I don't have questions. We're having a conversation. Okay. So don't miss me with that question stuff. Um... What, here's one for you. If you know, if you knew then what you know now, would you have even started?
1: I would have been so excited that I would have been better from day one. Where I am now, I'm so lucky to be trusted by human beings with their stories, it's the biggest gift you can have. You know, when uh, I was talking about the artist in Belgium that I've just been studying and I went...
0: Jan Fabro
1: by the way, Google him. I went and I made a decision on the way over there. As a director, I run a crew. I'm dealing with 60 people sometimes and there is an agenda because there's money being spent and you have to get results. You have to achieve something. You have to create a product, especially in in music or brand world. And to go over and do an art documentary, there was no agenda. So I made a promise on on my way over there. And I said to myself, when I get there, I'm going to ask for nothing. I'm going to require nothing. And I'm going to accept everything that is offered to me. From the people I'm filming. And it's very interesting. That mindset was the key to that project. We're dealing with actors and dancers. In very vulnerable situations. Very extreme artwork. And because I showed some kind of empathy. And, and hopefully some kind of humility. That when I felt somebody wanted my lens to look the other way. I turned my lens the other way. And it, was, it really taught me a lot. About being present and aware of my effect on the people that come in front of my lens. The responsibility I have to tell their story authentically and with compassion. I think, I hope, that's why the work I've done with Amy or the work I've done with Brittany or the work that I've done recently with XOV has some level of compassion to it because I'm really, really (laughs) careful about my responsibility with those stories. So... I would be excited as my 24-year-old self to think that I could be trusted with a story. What about your story? It's the story of you. It's the story of Caleb. It's the story of Paul. It's the story of my mother. My story is just a reflection of all the stories of the people that walk through my door.
0: That sounds like legacy.
1: It's a living thing. My story... The problem with legacy is it becomes ego. mythology so quickly.
0: It also, it also kind of stems from ego. It's like, I don't, I don't ever want to be forgetted and I want to make sure that everybody knows I was someone no
1: of. I have no sense of that. I have no sense of that. I don't understand that. I don't understand this idea that you have to leave something behind. Because I don't think you go. Uh, what is, I was at dinner the other day for the, the gallery that are doing my show in Belgium and the guy said to me, so you believe in reincarnation? And I went, I I don't know. He said, well, because you talk like you've had past life experience. I said, no, listen. He said, so you've had many lives.
0: I think you've had many lifetimes inside of this one.
1: And my response was, I've had one life, but perhaps a few bodies. Because that's what I believe. I I don't think you go anywhere to leave a legacy behind. I think you just move on. Again, the Hindu perspective would be that if a t-shirt is threadbare, if a pair of jeans have got no seams left, you discard them and you move on and you get new jeans and a new t-shirt. You wear them until they're no longer of use to you, but you don't hold on to them when they can't clothe you anymore. You get new clothes. And I think the soul and the spirit does the same thing when same the body... a car.
0: The body is a vehicle.
1: It's a vehicle. It's, you, you use it. Yeah, you are the
0: driver. Yeah.
1: You're the driver. Well, ah, or so, the passenger.
0: All right. But wouldn't then Legacy be pretty cool to come back and then be like, hang on a minute, that feels like I did that. Like to come back and kind of leave yourself a little, not like it just a little landmark or a little reminder that you stumble across and be like, oh, this is fucking weird.
1: Yeah, but now you're, you're, you're getting into a difficult area because you want to talk about time. And in, in all truth, I think time is is the biggest illusion of all. I think it's all happening right now. I think we're in one single moment constantly. So there's nothing to come back to and there's nothing to go forward to because it's all happening instantly.
0: But there is, though. But there isn't, though. <laughs> but, but there is because we can sit and we can read books by Christopher Columbus from 1495 and shit. Like, there are, there is history. History exists.
1: There's, a, there's history of another moment that's happening right now in its own space and time. So you have to think about it in terms of parallels. Every, every journey has its sync points. Every journey has its signposts. But it's never expanding horizontal field. So Christopher Columbus is marching along his journey at the same time as you are marching
0: along your journey. So is this like quantum relativity?
1: I don't know. It's just my feeling on stuff. I think everything's happening right now. To be present. It's the only way I can get you think, through. So
0: you would, you would say the time is like... Four dimensional in the terms that it's stacked on top of each other.
1: I think time is multi dimensional. I think four is limited. I think there's seven, twelve, a hundred dimensions.
0: But would you say that all of these situations are stacked on top of each other and they kind of just not...
1: I wouldn't say they're stacked top or bottom or sideways. I think they just revolve. Around themselves.
0: Oh, this is way too much. <laughs> yeah, because far too sober for this conversation.
1: Try to sober. (laughs) Yeah, but this is when you'll understand the conversation for the first time. True. Just think about it as in terms of the only moment we have got. We're supposed to be working, but we're stopped and we're doing... We are
0: working. Yeah,
1: but I mean working on something that has to be delivered rather (laughs) than something that...
0: This has to be delivered. I've got people waiting for me.
1: Yeah. All right, we are working right now on this.
0: And also everything else that comes afterwards.
1: But this is the only thing that exists right now for you and I. We're having this conversation in this moment. We're illuminating illuminating each other's ideas right now. That's the beauty of living in that moment. You can't you can't live in any other moment. It just makes you crazy. My dad used to say, if man had one sane moment in his life, he would kill himself. So, therefore, I'd rather be alive and insane than sane and dead.
0: I was thinking about this earlier. I was thinking, my worry, my biggest worry is not that I'm insane, it's actually that I'm sane. I was thinking, I kind of really hope that I am insane because if I am sane, I will just have to end it all. If ever I sit down and be like, I should go get like a, a job and just kind of not make shit anymore and just kind of give in to the quote unquote norm, which would be like a sane perspective on a universal scale. Well, on a Western scale, anyway. And I was like, fuck, I hope that I'm, I don't have that streak of sanity. I hope that I am.
1: Well, it's what I've often said to you is that your, your biggest virtue is also your biggest vice, which is that you you refuse to live a practical life.
0: Me, personally? Hmm. Yeah, you personally. Oh, Jesus attacking me on my own platform
1: no i'm not attacking you i'm just (laughs) just commenting
0: what does that even mean i'm I'm gonna be a martyr now to live congruently
1: in this lifetime yeah it's like we said about the studio there's rent there's furniture costs there's research materials that have to be bought whether it be music or films or there is a there is a value to an artistic life and we have to pay the price a lot of young people yourself included resist coming to that table and go well I can live at my mate's house I can sleep on a sofa I can get the night bus I can walk and if I've got a few dollars I can eat which I admire it immensely on one level, but when it restricts, then I think it's worth looking at. You said this morning, oh, this Bournemouth thing is long because it's not, it's not easy being not inside your own life. So at a certain point, we have to become aware of the, practic- the practical side of our life, a place to stay, clothes to put on our body, food to eat. Money in the bank, so that Shallows. we can go places. Clean yourself. Clean yourself, and that does require, in, the physical realm. Doing shit. And, and I really do admire the resistance, but resistance is futile.
0: <laughs> is that from Star Wars? It's from Star Wars, yeah. Star Wars or Star Trek or what? Darth Vader,
1: my nickname in my company. Um, with all the young directors, I was the dark Sith Lord.
0: Really? Yeah. I don't see it. I was different then. But you definitely are a Jedi Mind Specialist. Perhaps. Perhaps, <laughs> Perhaps so I am. <laughs> I'm trying to think if there's anything that I've missed or anything that I would want to ask. It's difficult because I speak to you every fucking day. So.
1: You don't speak to me every day. You disappear and you refuse to have conversations because you only have conversations over text.
0: Yeah, because I'm anxious. I don't like speaking on the phone. But yeah, you love it. Now I have a plat- uh, podcast where all I do is talk. Yeah. So outside of that, I'm quiet. Um, you have no, you have one, it's like a video game. You have one moment slash credit left. And you are stood in front of the whole world. And you've got a speaker and you can speak to every single person in the world. And you have your last credit and your last moment. What do you say? Be kind. You can. You, you, there's no limit to this credit. You can say as much as you want.
1: That's it. Be kind. You don't you say anything else. I was on the train today and this old guy sat next to me. And he said to me, um, what station is Islington? I mean, do you mean Highbury Islington? No, I mean Bronsbury. Bronsbury is where you got on. Yes, I'm going to Islington. He was like, I think. So I stayed on the train, two stops past my stop, and got him off at Islington. And as I stepped back on the platform, five people smiled at me. It took five minutes extra on my journey to go past my stop to get this old guy who couldn't see because of his glasses But what was beautiful is not actually my action. That was easy. What was beautiful was the humanity that I saw from all the other people who went, he did a nice thing. He was kind.
0: Thank God he did it because we weren't going to do it.
1: No, because everyone's too busy. No one's got any time. They've got to get where they're going. And you know what? To be late for a 75-year-old, I hope someone will be that kind when I'm 75.
0: And that is why this podcast is coming to you at 11pm and not 9pm. So big up that man from the train. Be kind. Normally I have everyone play me out on piano at the end of every every single episode, whether they can play it or not. And we don't have one here. And I'm upset about it. But we got jazz. We do have jazz, which has been on the whole time. And I don't know if it's too loud, if it's too quiet, um, but it's there. Anything you want to ask me? Anything that you want to say? This is your moment, Phil. One of many, but this is your moment.
1: To you, Cain Chatty, I would say trust yourself, but don't lie to yourself.
0: Don't lie to myself now?
1: Ever. Lie to everyone else, but never lie to yourself.
0: Is that a question?
1: It's not a question, it's just you said there's anything you want to say to me. And I want to say to you, trust yourself, but don't lie to yourself. Alright, thanks. All good.
0: Alright, in a bit. (laughs)